The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I do have some rocking new guitar in the beginning of my show. I'm kind of like switching around my music to see if I can find a different one. I was thinking, because a lot of people don't know this about me, but I do, I think, a decent imitation of Tina Turner. So I was kind of thinking, I don't know what you guys think, but I've been looking for a new direction that I had to serve. What do you think? What do you think? Lucky's already on. What do you think, Lucky? Out of applause. <laughs> you guys, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I won't do that to you. And also my husband, 
gets really embarrassed because at every wedding, when I maybe have had too much buttery Chardonnay, I, wedding, party, anything like that, I tend to want to get up on stage and do my Tina Turner impression. And he usually leaves, leaves the, um, the location at that point and is embarrassed. So uh, if I'm changing around my music, I, I unfortunately don't have the rights to Tina Turner. She's the queen. I wish I did. Um, but I am playing around with some new music in case anyone noticed. Uh, but I am ready to start the show. This podcast has been brought to you by the brand new hysterical podcast by Scott and Liam Kelly. They are a father and son team, and they came up with this great idea to talk about different sayings that people say, like jump off the bandwagon and cart before the horse. And they kind of talk about like funny stories about things that Liam used to say as a kid. I know that it, it affected me because my daughter, Ella, used to say things like, mom, bring the McPewter instead of the computer. So to this day, we still say McPewter. They just have such a great relationship and listening to the podcast just made me laugh. So check out the brand new podcast, Why Do We Say That? And I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. I'm really fortunate and excited to have my guest on today, Lucky Nua. He and I met, I, don't, I guess Lucky had reached out to me after one of my first podcasts with Dr. Nay. And he's just an incredible person. We started chatting and talking to each other, and we've both kind of gone through similar journeys in a lot of ways. Um, Lucky uh, has dealt with depression and anxiety throughout his life. And I actually came on Lucky Show. He has a show on YouTube. What is your show called, Lucky? Yeah, it's called the Mental Health Chats, and it's under the, uh, the YouTube channel uh, Mental Health Casual. So, Okay. And, mm-hmm. and Lucky's such a good interviewer and such a... I, uh, I appreciate you're it. Not, you're not a kid, but to me, I feel like a grandma. I always, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a young, smart man. I'll say that because I don't want to call you a kid. I'll um, take it. <laughs> but thank you so much, and and welcome to my show. Uh, it's great to be on. I really appreciate you uh, you returning the favor. And uh, yeah, it was actually me that asked to be on your uh, your podcast first, but uh, you know you were backed up a little bit, so uh, we decided to kind of go with mine since I have a pretty open schedule. Since uh, yeah, I've taken some time off from uh, from work to kind of pursue these uh, the podcasting, the YouTubing, and all these crazy ideas that I had. So uh, still trying to cultivate those right now. But yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Well, something I love about you is um, you are, you're, you're very open about what you've gone through in your life. And I found that men are not necessarily, especially young men are not necessarily as open to talking about depression and mental health as women are. And I've been lucky enough to meet a few people like you and a guest that I have coming on next week as well that, like me, want to break the stigma against mental health. I said it yesterday. I was talking, I was on somebody else's podcast and I was talking about um, if you broke your arm, right? 
would you like let your arm go flailing about and not wear a cast? Mm. Probably not, right? You would you would take care of it and put get a cast and be put on medication for the pain. Kind of the same thing with our brains, you know? And the the fact that people are so judgmental about people that are suffering from any kind of depression, anything like that. I, I just, I know it's my goal to end that. And I know that that's really important to you and your voice is so important and so needs to be heard in this world. So again, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're putting out there and I'm just really excited and thankful to have you on my show. So why don't we start with, like, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, and where you were, where you grew up, and wh- where you were born, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in, uh, technically I was born in Santa Clara, California, but uh, pretty much right next to San Jose, California, and uh, if anybody's familiar with Silicon Valley, that's where that is all located, and so I grew up there. Um, my father and my mom divorced. I, I think it was around when I was five, but I was in preschool time right there. Uh, my dad was pretty uh, abusive, but that that wasn't uncommon for the the Samoan culture. Um, you know, corporal punishment is still a very uh, big use in terms of discipline in that culture. Um, but I think as generations go on, they're starting to see some of the effects of it. Um, so, and also the studies are coming out that it's very detrimental. But um, you but know, can I, I stop I, you right yeah. there. So mm-hmm. when you say that, so in the Samoan culture, abuse mm-hmm. is prevalent. Between uh, parents, fathers and sons, explain. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's usually yeah, it's usually because in the Samoan culture, elders are to be respected, and if it's if it's not upheld, it it's almost seen as a, like a a sign of of disrespect. Whereas you know maybe in uh, more Western culture or you know American culture or you know pretty much any a lot of other cultures, you'd see it as oh this is a phase, you know. Whereas uh, Samoans, it seems like it's more of a nipping in the bud sort of thing before it even happens. And so, um, you know, when, when a lot of us, and my, my mom is not Samoan where, you know, my, 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 I'm half Samoan from my dad's side. Uh, so my mom was never okay with it. Um, and even when, uh, you know, when we were, when, uh, they were sharing custody of me, she made it very clear that it was not like if, if they hit me, like I wasn't going over there anymore. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it was still a pretty prevalent, you know, even when I was over there, I'd see other, like my cousins getting hit. Um, I still did get hit a little bit. Um, but you know, not nearly as much as some of my cousins or people that actually had, you know, um, uh, fathers over there. My, my dad was kind of in and out of that place. Cause, um, he would bring me over to my uncle Lay's house and, um, he was like the, the patriarch of the family. And so, you know, I was, uh, I would go there. I'd be pretty scared a lot of times because my dad would just, walk, you know, drive off and go do his thing while my, my, my Samoan family would take care of me. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it, was, uh, it was pretty interesting kind of living in both worlds, you know, living in a typical, you know, in my, in my mom's family where it was not, you know, nobody got hit. Um, sure, there are arguments and all that kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, I never raised that level. Um, so I never felt, uh, I always felt safe with my mom. And so, you know, um, I went through that for a lot of my life. And then eventually, somewhere around middle school, my father moved about three hours away over to a place called Patterson. And so, you know, effectively, it kind of just stopped us seeing each other for a long time. And we, he would see me every now and then, but not too often. It was very, very, very rare. And so eventually that kind of leads up to when I was in um, high school 
and this is where the fighting moment comes in. Uh, about uh, senior year, I, you know, I was graduate. I graduated. I was, uh, you know, had my first girlfriend. I, you know, everything was looking up. And then my father kind of said something to my mom uh, because I decided to go to San Jose City Community College instead of San Jose State University, which is four-year university. And my father kind of said to my mom um, off to the side, you know, hey, you know, why isn't he going to a real school? Why isn't he going to university? And so that just flipped me out because my whole life, my dad had always kind of always been on me, you know, oh, why do you, uh, why do you weigh this much? Why don't you, why don't you shimmer your beard? Why don't you have a beard? You know, it was yeah. just like all these, all these very conflicting things. And so when he said that, that it set me off and I started doing things like punching walls, um, walking, I'd walk for like three hours a day, but just in, at night because it, 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 it kind of soothed me. But at the same time, it was just thoughts racing in my head. I wanted to be somewhere else all the time. When you were a kid and you were getting, when you say you were, were you, you were physically beaten at, yeah. at what age did that start? Um, I know I was in diapers. That's the earliest I can remember. Um, but my mom had to work two jobs. So, uh, cause my dad wasn't working at the time. So he got us most of the time. And I have, uh, I have two other siblings, but we all come from different fathers. Um, and so, you know, he also disciplined them and they also had a really, really tough time with him as well. Um, so when so, you say yeah. you were in diapers, I talk about this a lot. Um, the what the the amount of trauma when you're that age that you bring yeah. into your adult life and 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 kind of and again, I'm no therapist. I just know this from myself. Mm -hmm. um, you bring it into your adult life and you kind of push these things down. And it sounds to me like it was extremely traumatic for you to grow up with a father that was abusive. Was it just physical or was it emotional as well? It was emotional, but um, I feel like my, my brother and my sister probably got the majority of that. Um, I was the youngest out of all three of us. And so um, also I, I happened to be the favorite of my, my grandmother on my father's side. So um, he was the baby of his family. And so, you know, anytime I was over there and she was around, like nobody could hit me. It was like she would not let anybody hit me at that point. And um you know, I, it's, it's, inter it's interesting that you, you know, we're talking about how trauma can kind of affect us. It's interesting. One of the biggest um, senses that we have is our sense of smell. And I, every time I go to McDonald's, there's that like apple pie thing that they have. Um, she used to have a lip gloss that smelled exactly like uh, McDonald's. And so I used to just always order the apple pies. And I could, every time I'd eat an apple pie, I'd feel like calm and safe whenever I was with them because he'd take me to McDonald's all the time. And so every time I'd, he'd, be like oh yeah what do you want and I was like oh I'd get an apple pie and he'd usually make fun of me for you know overeating and all that stuff but um you know that it always made me feel a little bit safer with him and because, um, because you thought yeah. of your grandmother exactly that's, the floss that she had on that's amazing and it's so true that senses affect us in so many ways do, do and I, do you when you say that, that this is prevalent in the in the Samoan culture and I know I'm saying, I'm not saying Samoan like you do. I wish I could say oh, that's it that that's okay. It sounds so <laughs> much better when you say it. I'm like <laughs> not saying it correctly. But um, do you, so are, do you, are you heavily involved in, in with other families of that background? And you said that you saw that often with friends. And just to backpedal a little bit, you're saying that that's changing now? Like it's not accepted 
because that's shocking to me just hearing that it that's an accepted thing i'm shocked to hear that yeah and it's it's literally just kind of the culture shock of it like if you go over to um you know we actually visited american samoa um back in 20 oh man i don't remember 2010 maybe i was a junior in high school and yeah the culture was completely different right you know you have everything is very um strict you know um strict in, in terms of like everybody has a role to do um, and that's why, you know, so you hear about, uh, you know, Samoans getting into uh, sports and stuff, right? That was because that's the only thing they have to do over there, like the kids. Um, so it's really good if you're ever, if people ever think about moving over there, it's better if you're like retired because there's great fishing spots, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the water's blue, you know, everything like that. But as a kid, you know, you really want to get out of there. You really want to get to, um, you know, you really want to get picked up by a college team or something like that and get out of there so that you can, you know, have, have a little bit more um, agency. But the thing, the problem with that agency is because they're restricted so much, and you see this a lot with, um, you know, heavily, 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 or heavy, heavy conservative um, people. You know, I had um, uh, Dr. Nay's assistant, Clara, on, right? And she came from that very heavy conservative background. And they ended up, once she kind of branched out, it was like, oh, there's all this stuff. And you weren't, you didn't get slowly introduced to it because you didn't really understand and there was this whole other world, right? And so when all of a sudden these, these someone's get out of that culture, they're like, oh, now I have all this freedom. And instead of the parents introducing some freedom to them so that they can know what to do when they ha with uh, how to handle it, they end up finding drugs, you know, obesity is on the rise. I've been keeping track of this for a while, but I know we've been in the, at least the top 10 conversation of top obese people in the world per capita um, for at least since, at least since the eighties, I think. And, you know, why, that's why is that? Do you, is it, is it just the way is it the way what the way that people eat? Is it your from what I understand, the little bit that I know about your culture is mm -hmm. it's it's accepted to be bigger, correct or no? Am I wrong? Yeah, that? no, that's okay. definitely a big thing. Actually, my my cousin who's very very uh, skinny, he's about my height, but probably weighs like one hundred and sixty pounds. So I'm six three, so that's very skinny. And he always he was always telling me, especially when I started ballooning up at one point, letting myself go. He was like, "Oh man, dude, you're looking big." And he was always, you know, looking at me like that. I was like, "Bro, I'd kill to have your body, man. This is this isn't like it's not cool to be this like this." But um, you know, yeah. To answer your question, yeah, it is mostly accepted. I think a lot of it has to. Uh, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you you play sports so much in when you're young, and you can kind of metabolize all this stuff that you just grow up with that. You know. You, you know, I remember they had uh, back in Samoa, there was these, uh, you know, these uh, big jugs of water. And I was like, where'd you get these jugs from? It's like, oh, yeah, those are those were originally jars of mayonnaise. And I was like, what? This is like this is like a gallon of mayonnaise. What do you need that for? And, you know, my brother and I were just weren't used to it. We had to actually ask them to stop putting so much mayonnaise on, every, on everything. And, you know, the thing is, when you grow up around that, you're not really growing up. And I think uh, another thing is, you know, bringing this back to like mental health and stuff, right? It also comes with that too. Like whenever we talk about mental health in that culture, it's almost seen as, oh, you're, you're just, you're, you're too white, you know, you're too, you're westernizing, you know, us or something like that. Like it's, it's exclusive to Western culture, like mental health and physical health, like, you know, getting on a diet and all that stuff. And, you know, it, it, it I think uh, the, the mind, the mindset is just wrong from the, from the get go. Do you think that, because you were you were talking about how you were both you were kind of like Americanized and then because of your mom and then you were like dealing with both worlds and we kind of in the very beginning talked about you know skipped ahead to you being 
teased by your dad about mm-hmm. your weight and you know, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that confuses me a little bit because if he was used to that, why was he teasing you about your appearance for being bigger? Yeah, well, actually, funny enough, he was one of the only Samoans that wasn't super, he was actually very uh, built for a long time. He, at, at his, in his heyday, he could bench like 550 pounds. And so he was always used to, you know, getting all this attention. I think that's why he ended up being a philanderer. A lot of women paid him a lot of attention, um, you know, and, you know, a lot of them thought he was, he played on like the San Francisco 49ers for a long time because there was a Samoan player that was on there. And, you know, I think a lot of that kind of got to his head because I think he was bullied pretty heavily for being the youngest um, in, in that family for a long time. And so when you kind of get bullied that long, you kind of want to, to enact that on somebody else. And I think, uh, I just don't think he had a good, uh, he didn't have a chance to mature in life. And, you know, funny enough, later on in his life, he eventually kind of turned to religion and actually found a woman that would beat the crap out of him if he tried anything. Um, he ended up marrying a Samoan woman after my mom. And uh, she, uh, I heard some stories and she does not take any crap from uh, anybody. So, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting to see the, the shoe on the other foot, but it really did, he really did need somebody like that to humble him, to make sure that you, but um, to go back to kind of what you were saying about, you know, being, um, you know, him kind of teasing me about my weight and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I didn't think I was that, big until he said it and then I was like oh like what what in the world is going on you know and uh and what, you know, and what age was that because middle, you said you also said that a, 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 like it's a normal like accepted thing like everybody plays sports and were you teased because you weren't pay, playing sports or how did that go yeah good question um I a little bit because i you know it's very common for Samoans to play football in high school, and i didn't want i at first i tried to, but then I realized I just didn't want to do it i I just didn't see the i didn't see the benefit in it um and not saying that you know if you play football you're you know anything like that but it just it just didn't seem like the right thing to me so eventually I actually got into band um and so i I did end up on the field, but I was a trombone player for the marching for the marching band and so which you is know, amazing, uh, by the way. Shout out yeah. band. I was always more, I was always wanted to be in the band, but I wanted to be one of those like baton twirler girls in the front. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I never, I mean, li- I never lived that. out that dream, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I kind of defied a lot of expectations for him, but um, in his eyes, I think it was more like I was dropping below them than anything else you know he always wanted me to work out and and to get bigger and all this kind of stuff and you know it's funny funny enough you know before he did pass away he did actually give me some good advice that actually stuck with me and I still apply today in terms of lifting weights and stuff but when he was in that mindset I just don't think he knew how to say it like I said it was a maturity thing he just didn't get a chance to mature the same way that a lot of people do and I'm starting to realize that now as I go through some of that baggage that you know has been building up over the the years and uh you know, it, it definitely still comes back to me, but I also have to look at it through the other lens or else I would be just like him, right? I wouldn't Yeah, be so you're trying, you're trying to, everything you're doing is breaking, it's all about breaking cycles, right? So if mm-hmm. your dad was dealing with, you know, ab- abuse from his dad, if it was common in the culture, then obviously if you don't work on it, it's going to repeat itself. 
do you think that he also put a lot more pressure on you just being a boy, right? A lot of times parent men want their kids to play sports. Is that, do you think that he would, he, you felt like he was teasing you because you were a little bit different that way? Yeah. And I think also I put, I got a lot of pressure put on me. So I'm actually, he, he named me after his nickname. So his actual name is Onge. Um, but when he came here, when he came here, so it's spelled O-G-E, but in the Samoan culture, when you have a G, you put an N before it. So instead of O-G-E becoming O-G, it's Onge. And so, you know, he, when he came over here, he decided, oh, you know, I'll go by my nickname, Lucky. Well, he didn't spell it the American way. He spelled it the Samoan way. So that's why my name is L-A-K-I. And when I was born, he ended up naming me after him. And, uh, you know, I always saw that as like a really big curse. For the longest time, I wanted to change my name. I wanted to change it to like the American Lucky, you know, L-U-C-K-Y, to distance myself from him. But um, now I've kind of seen it as a, ch a challenge to retake that name and make something great out of it. You know, instead of being like this burden that he's put on me, I've decided to kind of take it and, and kind of turn it into, because, you know, my, 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 my uh, when I went to, Samoa, we stopped in Hawaii um, to go visit my uh, uncle over there. And a lot of them knew my dad is crazy lucky. That's what they knew him as. You know, he was, he kind of went off the handle. He was doing drugs. He, you know, he got into cocaine and uh, marijuana and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, eventually he got to the point where I think in his 40s, early 40s, I think he was wearing dentures at that point. And so, yeah, he wow. really messed himself up. And that was actually, I think that was the demise of him. Also the bad diet because he was on dialysis later in his life and passed away when he was 60. So, you know, it definitely all kind of came around. How long ago uh, yeah. did that happen? Did he pass away? It was 2017. Okay. So not that long ago. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think all of this stuff makes sense why you would have gotten to the point where we kind of touched on where you got into high school and then you were going to the community college, which was a letdown to him. Do mm -hmm. you want to talk about when you started having issues with your anxiety and depression? Was that really the, the time that you started dealing with that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've definitely always had problems with, with, with social anxiety in particular. I've always been very quiet. Um, I accidentally... So I actually, in middle school and I think eighth grade, I got put into the advanced drama program, you know, where they do all the plays and stuff. And um, I, I told the teacher, I was like, I didn't sign up for this. And she was like, I know a lot of people got put in here randomly, but, you know, if you want to give it a shot, you know, you're more than welcome to. And, you know, I gave it a shot. And so I, I ended up, you know, auditioning for the first play. You have to choose like three, three people that you um, maybe want to do. And the third one was always like one of the top people or something like one of the main people. And I was like, okay, I don't want that one. So you I'll didn't want to be the lead. Yeah. So she ended up, uh, uh, making me the lead of oh. both plays. <laughs> so I ended up being the lead in the first play and I ended up kind of the lead. There were a lot of different leads. And then I ended up being the main villain for the sec second play. And the second play, I ended up just, you know, one of, one, of my, one of the other people ended up wanting to switch with me. He was playing like a J. Jonah Jameson from Spider-Man, you know, very grumpy boss character. And I was playing Dr. Shock Clock, who was, you know, a guy who could snap his fingers and stop time and all that stuff. And, you know, we, we begged my teacher to, you know, hey, can you please change it? And she's like, you know what, my decision is final. But if you guys, you know, Lucky, if you really do not want this role, if you really don't, 
you know, and she, she kind of flipped on me. She's like, oh, if you really don't have faith in my decision making, I was like, oh, crap, okay, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> and, you know, it, it actually kind of gave me my voice a little bit because my, my grandfather actually went there and he, when he saw that play, he was like, I don't think I've ever heard you say more words in my life, you know, in, 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 you know, in my whole existence at that point. And after that, I started kind of getting out of my shell a little bit, but going forward to, you know, kind of what we were alluding to, yeah. Um, yeah, in high school, I started branching out a little bit, but the social anxiety kind of switched from anxiety before the events to the anxiety after the events, the judgment, the, the harshness of myself, the judging and all that stuff. And, you know, I was so in a money you, you were judging, you were judging yourself. At that exactly. Point. Yeah. You were and, critical you know, of what about yourself? So, I mean, just everything, anytime I would go off script because it felt good in the moment, uh, an example would be I was in a mariachi band and, you know, we, we, you know, we had the charros suits, everything going on. And uh, this wasn't in, this wasn't supposed to happen, but I just kind of, it was our last performance. I was a senior. So my, my girlfriend was in the crowd. My mom was in the crowd and all this stuff. So I just decided, you know what, the hell with it. I'm, I jumped off the stage and I started dancing with the folklorico dancers in front and, you know, just started, you know, kind of doing that. And I realized that, um, you know, I just realized that I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to kind of be free. And I was like, and, but then afterwards I was like, oh my God, what did I do? I just made an ass of myself. And you know, no, I ended up, I ended up no. sitting in a corner just thinking about that. Right. And that's just how I was back then. Right. But you saying these things, I'm like, lucky you're like kind of a badass. Like do you, <laughs> you didn't take the, you didn't take the road that everyone else takes in life where it's like, mm. you're a boy and you go and you play football. You, you did the band and you were in a mariachi band, by the way. I don't know anybody that has been in a mariachi band. I think that's so cool. Yeah. And I was funny enough. I was the only one that I remember. Yeah. I was the only one that wasn't, uh, I have no like, um, Latin descent, you know, no Mexican descent on my side, but you know, I got called in to play trombone for something that they were doing for a banda, which has a lot of brass instruments in it. And, you know, I was like, Oh, this music is great. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing this. And, you know, I was always a very ambitious person, but it, the problem was after the ambitious part would happen, that's when I would start judging myself. And so you would start judging yourself. Do you feel like me? I mean, cause you know, I told you I acted, I was an actress when I was younger and mm -hmm. I, I found that I would escape into my characters. Yeah. And, and so it sounds to me like you're very, very right brained. Like I am. You know, very creative and you like music. I have the like I have a passion for music, like it sounds like you do. And I loved mm. to go into be in and like find myself being free when I could be somebody else. And it mm. kind of sounds to me like you felt that way. But then when you would snap out of it, like you said, or get out of like jumping off the stage and being free, you would doubt yourself. Is that mm. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think to add on to that, I think it also had a lot to do with my dad. You know, anytime I felt like I went outside the boundaries, it was almost like his gaze became became my gaze. You know, and uh, you know, all of a sudden I wasn't I wasn't sticking to the script. I wasn't doing the things that I should be doing. I was doing something that could embarrass me. You know, in the long run, and you know, and all of a sudden it just became like I because my dad wasn't there anymore to really um, put this judgment on me. It was it became my job to do it in, in my own mind and to kind of keep me in check because I didn't, I didn't really have a plan. I mean, I think that's what we're, what a lot of people don't realize about at not having your father in your life as a young man 
is he's supposed to give you some type of blueprint. You know, not exactly like a map to show you exactly where to go, but at least show you where the milestones are and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But since I didn't have that, I didn't know where I was going. So it was almost like walking in a sandstorm. You know, you just keep going and going. You're hoping for an oasis. And every now and then you get one. But then once you get to that oasis, nobody ever talks about what happens afterwards. You still have to go back to that, that desert and then go back and try and find another one or at least try and find something. And that's how a lot of my days were in high school because, you know, everybody had their major figured out. You know, I, I was like, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so, um, you know, and that kind of uh, leads into, you know, my, my depression and my anxiety. So um, one day, eventually I was you know, one day I was having really a lot of trouble sleeping and I woke up in the middle of the night and all this, of a sudden I, this was in high school. It was, uh, right after, yeah, it was, it was a high school. I think it was right after I graduated. So in May and okay, then so going yeah. into college. Yeah, exactly. Going into and, the community. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so I was, I just woke up and the room was red. Um, the, there was red writing on the wall that said hopeless and, I was like, this is a crazy dream. This is weird. And I started hearing voices in my head. It was just saying, you know, all kinds of stuff that I can't really say on here. But, um, you know, I was seeing myself do things to myself in front of me. Like it was just, it was like I could see it in front of me happening. And so I was, I remember just crying and closing my eyes, but I realized it wasn't a dream anymore. I was literally seeing this all happen in front of me. And so I eventually got to sleep. I think I was up for about two hours experiencing that. And so um, eventually my sleep got really bad and that's a lot of people don't realize this, but that's usually when a lot of the hallucinations happen for anybody is when you're not sleeping well. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a little tip for everybody. Just get a good night's sleep because uh, yeah. the, the downside is definitely, uh, definitely bad. Were, were you, um, when that happened to you and that was the first time it happened, had mm -hmm. you been experimenting with like drugs or alcohol or something that would bring so like something like that on or it was just out of the blue? Yeah, funny enough, that's actually more intense than when I got into drugs later in life. I had okay. not done any of that stuff. It literally just been, I mean, also I have a very active imagination. Like when all those times being quiet, I was just kind of imagining myself in another world all the time, you know, imagining myself as the main character of this and that. And um, just because reality seemed so cruel that it, didn't seem like, it, you know, this is the reality I was given. I just wanted to reject it. And, you know, eventually I got to the point where one day I just had this really severe panic attack and I was just like, oh my God. And eventually I got to the point where I just, I just stopped talking. I couldn't talk anymore. And let know, me stop you right there. Yeah, so you had that experience with seeing red and then was that considered a panic attack or what was that considered an episode? What was that? It was more like a manic episode. A manic um, episode. Okay. Yeah. That, that was what they told me at the hospital. Did Guys, you go to the hospital that at that point when you were seeing the red, like what were. No, funny enough, that was probably like two or three weeks before. For um, okay. I actually ended up eventually going to the hospital, and were I had you, that. Were you living with your mom at the time, or? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. your mom was there when you were experiencing that. Yeah. Well, she didn't know about the the hallucination part of it until after, until you know, the the next part of this, where I, you know, I ended up having the panic attack and I couldn't speak because you know she was talking to me, but I wasn't, I couldn't say anything to her, and I just, I realized like. Uh, it was almost like somebody was covering up my, my mouth with their hand and I just couldn't say anything. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Um, but, but, I, when, so I ended up, but when did you, hmm? 
just trying to make a timeline here. So you, yeah. you had that episode and then like you woke up the next day after not really sleeping, like you said, and then you mm -hmm. seemed to be fine. Or did you start to have panic attacks two weeks later, but you didn't know what they were? What was the timeline? Yeah, so I've, I've, I probably only had, I probably only had like two or three panic attacks, but only okay. one that I can vividly remember. And the next day I kind of just shrugged it off. Like, Oh man, that was a, a crazy dream even though I know it wasn't a dream but I wanted it to be a dream so I just kind of said to myself it was a dream and the only reason why I know it wasn't a dream was because I can remember everything about it pretty much till today you know I can remember exactly where I was laying I can remember my hands you know usually that's a common thing is you look at your hand in your dream so you can lucid dream because there usually won't be definition on it so you can kind of get yourself out of it yeah and you know I remembered everything about it and so you know eventually you know going forward. I think this was about June. That was back in May. And so uh, June, I ended up, you know, having this panic attack that led me to, you know, being quiet and I couldn't say anything. So my mom was about like five feet away from me and I ended up texting her, you know, and she, she was like, you know, what do you need? And I was like, I just, I need help. I don't, I don't, I didn't know what to Like you couldn't, you couldn't speak. How long mm -hmm. ago was this, by the way? This was back in 2011. So our okay. 2000, yeah, 2011. Yeah. That was, yeah. Okay. That's when I graduated. Okay. So you couldn't, speak and it's interesting because you know i've t talked openly about suffering from panic attacks mm -hmm. but everybody suffers in different ways like there's people yeah. that like i for me i couldn't breathe i thought it was dying yeah. um but you just couldn't understand you couldn't comprehend how to get your voice out Could, were you having problems breathing like what were your yeah, other I symptoms yeah, so the the problems breathing happened before that, and then you know, but my mom was right next to me because I I was I was in the living room for a long time, and so you know she was just in the computer next to me. But I didn't want her to hear this, so I tried to make my breathing even shallower so she couldn't hear it. And I ended up you know just kind of it just kind of stopped me, and I realized there were so many thoughts in my head that I couldn't pick out words anymore. Like I literally, I think you had a pretty good allusion to this. You had mentioned like a, a one of those old school freezers, kind of sh you, know, you know when it sounds like it's shutting yeah, down. Yeah, when I was on your on your um, YouTube mm -hmm. show, I for me when I had was having such horrible panic attacks, I would be in my bed, you know, at yep. night, and I would doze off, right? So I would be what I thought was asleep, but then all of a sudden I would just like be like, oh, and I couldn't breathe. And yep. I would hit my husband who was sitting next to me. And I, and I, and I, again, like what you said, like what I had said on your show was I, it felt like an old refrigerator just completely going, like shutting down and going, da, 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 and then da, da, like going back on. It was crazy. Yep. So, so you didn't have those symptoms or you did? I definitely did, but like I said, I, there was more to it. Like I, instead of me, like uh, you know, instead of it like taking over me, I still had some consciousness to the point where I I tried to suppress it more, and that's what eventually led me to like my thoughts just going around so fast that I couldn't pick out words anymore. It's almost like if you if your listeners can like imagine a tornado happening full of words and trying to pick out a word from it, right? And just, I couldn't find them anymore. It was so, I was so lost. And so I, but funny, funny, but that was only when it came to my voice. Like my, my, I could still text things because it was like a physical, you know, you have Dr. Nay on a lot, you know, she talks about somatic psychotherapy and stuff. And, you know, the physical sensation of touching the buttons actually kind of soothed me a little bit because it made me feel like I could uh, speak again. But, you know, eventually I had to ask my mom to, you know, for help. And so she. So was that um, just one 
panic attack that you were like, I have to go to the hospital. It was that bad. Yeah, that was yeah. exactly it. it. Yeah. And so, you know, she ended so up driving me. what happened at the hospital? What did they say? Yeah. So I went to the emergency room. Um, eventually I did get back to speaking just because I think I was in a different environment. There were different people talking to me. And so eventually I was able to like talk and um, you know, but they, they put me under what's called a 5150 and it's just, it's a hold that the hospital can put on you if you're a danger to yourself or others. And I was a danger to myself at that point. Um, they eventually took me over to the, luckily there was an on-site place, uh, right around the corner from it, uh, where they do the, um, the inpatient procedure where the psych ward is, mental health hospital, whatever you want to call it. And I was, I was put in there roughly maybe around 10 or 11. I think it's very late at night. And, you know, I started talking to all these psychologists and they were just saying, hey, uh, you know, I, I just realized something just kept coming up, was, which was my father. I just kept on mentioning him and I couldn't, I, I still remember thinking to myself like, oh, does my dad have something to do with this? <laughs> it was very strange that but I had why, the wherewithal. But why did they think that you were a danger to yourself? Had you said that you wanted to kill yourself or had you? I yeah. was, yeah, I was crying pretty profoundly and I couldn't, I still was having trouble speaking and you know i was kind of asking them or you know they were kind of asking me like you know what do you is there something they need and i was like i just don't know i i really and i i was having a lot of trouble with that um and like i said i wasn't able to speak about like until about an hour into being at the hospital right and so that was uh so they kind of picked up on a lot of that stuff and um they had no also she kind of said you know i you know i'm the nurse was very nice or sorry the doctor was very nice that put me under that 5150 she said you know i will i'm going to put you under 5150 you know for your own sake i do want to let you know though that you know you won't be able to do this this you know i, I you can't own a gun for five years you can't uh, do this and i you know i, I said to her okay you know i because i just you knew. were you knew that that was good for you Interesting. yeah okay. yeah yeah. So, you know, you know been, what to be responsible, like to be responsible enough with like caring about other people and yourself, you obviously knew I like you were holding yourself responsible enough to be like, yeah, I need this. Whereas a lot of times people won't admit that, right? If they need to be, they'll fight it. So yeah. that, that takes a lot of bravery to be able to say, I need this. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I went through the, the whole thing and, you know, I, I always described it as like Dr. Drew's celebrity rehab. Like you have, you have a, a roommate that's always weird. I don't know what it is, but you know, I had a very interesting roommate that just slept all day and um, didn't exactly know what his deal was until a little bit later. But, um, you know, I kind of went through that whole process and, you know, um, they, How long were you they, in there? Uh, three days. Okay. And uh, yeah, not, not nearly as long as, as some people do, but you know, I was diagnosed with major depression, social anxiety, and mania because of the hallucinations. Eventually got onto Zoloft and Risperidol, which is an antipsychotic. And um, you know, that was doing pretty well for me. Um, I eventually found a therapist that had, he had suffered from social anxiety as well and was an, an expert in it. So he helped me a lot. You know, they, it was really, my fir first therapist was like really profound on me and um, you know, eventually it got to the point where it, you know, I took a little break from therapy and, you know, I was just like, oh, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. Um, this was, I'd gone for therapy for about like two years, two, two years after that. And so, um, so this was like the time I always talk about timelines just so yeah. the audience can understand. So that was sure. like 2011 to 2013. And then you decide you were on the medication successfully. Mm -hmm. Were yep. you, did you continue to have the panic attacks and the hallucinations or was the medicine kind of like keeping you in place? 
Yeah, so the medicine was keeping me in place, and eventually I actually got off of the medication. Um, my my uh, my psychiatrist um, had actually recommended that to me because I wasn't, you know, when you go to the um, when you go to the therapist, you always give these uh, zero to six or sorry zero to three answers. Like, how often have you wanted or have you had any thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself? Zero, one, two, three. You know, in the last uh, a lot in the last you know whatever days and a lot in the last two weeks, something like that. And my scores were pretty low and even my therapist and him were talking a lot and they hadn't really seen a lot uh, from me. So they kind of, they kind of had, had deemed it uh, okay for me to kind of go on my own for a little bit. And if I ever did need to come back, um, yeah, I had his number and all that kind of stuff. And so, but did, um, you wean, actually, did they wean you off? I would yes. assume they weaned you off. Okay. Yeah. So I was taking, I think two Risperidol tab I can't remember exactly the, the dosage now that I'm thinking about it, but eventually I, I eventually got off the, anti, they, they got me off of the Risperidol first because it, it raised my cholesterol. Um, that was one of the side effects that happened. And, you know, I was already a big guy as it was. Um, so that was one thing they definitely wanted to wean me off of. And then the Zoloft eventually came off after that. And so, um, I was actually doing very well, but in the Bay Area, it's very uh, popular to smoke weed, and uh, my friends were no exception. I eventually kind of got into that, and uh, I don't have a lot against weed. I just have a lot against me doing weed because I was a sun up till sundowner. I would smoke it at work, and for people that don't know, you know, I was working in retail where I used to drive forklifts and all that kind of stuff. So I was always high. You know. So it sounds like you went from kind of like being under control, being it, being on these medications, they were helping you to the point where yep. you didn't need them, but you probably really still did need them. But mm -hmm. then instead you turned to what a lot of times people do to, to like cope is marijuana, alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with my social situation, you know, my social anxiety and all that stuff, because everybody else was doing it around me and I felt left out a little bit. Mm -hmm. and so I just wanted, so I wanted to feel like I belong there. And, you know, eventually I did that. And, and was, um, that, still, was that not good for you? Because for some people, they cannot smoke pot because it makes them super paranoid and it can make things even worse. So is that what happened with you? Um, funny enough, I actually like the paranoia. That's a problem. I'm a very interesting person in the fact that I like it when things are out of control because it just, it feels exhilarating. In fact, you know, for people that don't know, so like a, when you eat an edible, you know, edible marijuana, um, usually like 20 milligrams is good for like a normal person to kind of feel kind of okay. Um, 75 is when it starts to get kind of into like, oh my God, I'm really stoned. You know, 100, you know, all that kind of stuff. I eventually got to the point where I was able to eat like 300 milligrams and I used to do that every Friday and just trip balls for all that Friday <laughs> and feel great. I was like, Oh my God, let's go to the mall or, you know, let's, cause I want to be, I want to get the crap scared out of me. You know, it was, it was ridiculous. I really liked the, the chaos and that's always what I've always liked. Even when I was heavily drinking, which kind of around the same time, you know, I liked drinking and driving because I liked not knowing what was going to ha happen next. And oh, I God, needed that acceleration. That's so scary. Yeah. But, it, yeah, but it, it, it does, it does, it does make sense. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I personally never, my, I mean, I definitely like to drink wine, but yeah. I've no, I mean, I can't, I can't get to the point to ever understand like pot or any of that stuff. Cause the couple times in my life, that I have smoke pot, I'm always somebody that gets super paranoid, but it does make sense for you because you're so creative. 
mm-hmm. that you would want to go into that place. So, um, so what, what made you kind of stop smoking? Did you hit a wall? Yeah, it was, um, it was mostly just because even the people that smoked a lot were saying like, man, he smokes a lot. It was crazy. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, and also the money was a big thing. Um, you know, I'd spend, geez, I'd spend maybe $120 a week. Um, oh my gosh. and you know, because I smoked so much, you know, for, um, to get paint people a picture, I used to smoke like a blunt a day by myself, you know, and that's a lot of weed, you know, a gram is about a, enough to make a, a blunt and a gram is roughly about $10 a gram. It's roughly about $10 a gram. So that's about $50 down the drain by Friday. Right. And that's you, not including you cons- the times that I You partied. obviously considered yourself as having an addiction. Yeah, at that point, but I was yeah. like every other stoner that said, oh, yeah, I can quit whenever I want to. But then, you know, I just don't want to quit, you know, just every everybody kind of said the same thing. And, uh, you know, eventually just got to the point where I, I, I realized I didn't like my job at that point. I was having a lot of trouble with one of the managers. And I, I actually this is where my religion kind of comes into play. I, I begged God. I was like, if you can be with me when I go into that office and tell them I'm quitting, like, I swear to God, I'm never going to smoke smoke again. And you know, lo and behold, I went to the office, no, um, no two weeks notice or no nothing. And I just kind of went in there and said, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I need to work on myself. And, you know, to their credit, they were very nice about it. They decided to put on my record if I ever did want to go back, you know, that, they, that I gave them my two weeks notice so I can always be hired back there so that it didn't seem like we got off on the wrong foot or anything like that. Because I'd worked there for about seven years and had always been, you know, pretty, uh, pretty like a willing employee. And so, um, you know, they definitely hooked it up with that. Do you feel like any regrets about any of the decisions like you talked about? And I'm not judging you, although this is judging, Megan, not, <laughs> to, be, not to be silly. Um, but like you talk about like the drinking and driving and some of those kinds of things, you know, mm-hmm. put, like obviously you're putting other people's lives at risk by doing that. Is that... Do you look back and say, like, maybe I shouldn't have done those things or Mm. do you have any regrets or do you really think that it was just stemming from your mental, your, I don't, I don't really like saying mental illness, but mental Mm -hmm. differences. I like to say that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you have to look at it in the context of my life. You know, I really wanted to die at that point. You know, I've always, mm-hmm. I've, I dealt, I think between 19, uh, the ages of 19 and 25, I was the most suicidal. And there were times where I just really wanted to die. It just got to that point. And so with the drinking and driving thing, I just, the, the problem with all of this though, Megan, is the fact that I didn't think about other people. I didn't think the, about the fact that if I did drink and drive and I hit somebody, I always thought, oh yeah, I could just die. That's fine. I never really thought about the other person at the other side of that. And so it's, that's, it's a kind so, of, uh, that's not to talk over you, but that yeah. that's very valid because it shows how, how, what a dark place you were in. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you're, I mean, I've talked openly about my, my story is different, but you know, you're, you're in this place of like being suicidal and you don't, you don't really think about other people. You just think, I just want this to stop. I just mm-hmm. want this. I want, I mean, you talk about being spiritual. I'm spiritual as well. Mm-hmm. You know, just to have this pain go away. Is that how you were feeling? Yeah. And I felt like I couldn't do it on my own. So if I did it through some accident, it wouldn't, uh, you know, nobody could blame themselves. Nobody could, 
um, when I was gone, nobody could, you know, look at me differently and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, looking back on it now, I definitely, uh, I, I, you know, I definitely wouldn't want to do it. But the fact is that it did happen. So I don't look at it with, um, I don't look at it exactly with, with shame or anything like that. I definitely look at it as I can't go back there because it'll, it'll, it's detrimental to my health, my overall health at this point. And that's kind of what, what I always, what always go through in my mind whenever I'm at the HEB supermarket over here in Texas. Um, and I, you know, all of a sudden I'll stroll next to the, the, the alcohol aisle and I'll see all the stuff that I used to get, the Mickey's, 40s, the, you know, Miller High Life, all that kind of stuff. Every time I look down the aisle, I just remember kind of instinctively used to just grabbing a six pack that I always used to get and always being able to just do that and kind of listen to my muscle memory and just go, oh, yep, I got this one, I got this one. And, mm-hmm. you know, always, always kind of remembering that in the back of my head. But, um, yeah, you know, do, I, do I definitely Do you not drink it. anymore? Do you not no, drink? I'm, yeah, I'm completely sober. I haven't, uh, I haven't drank for about a year and a half. And I haven't smoked for about three years. Well, that's, that's great. So what, when you got out of that time period mm-hmm. and you left your job, did you, did you go back into therapy? Did you realize like you needed help again? Did you go back on medication? Actually, I went back into therapy before that. And that's actually what led me to quitting that job. But in quitting that job, um, I actually lost that therapist. I, I lost that therapist actually before that because he was thinking about moving up uh, somewhere else. And, you know, it seems like he's doing pretty good. So great for him. But um, no, I actually hadn't been, I haven't really been back in therapy for pretty long while, but I definitely still use a lot of the, the mechanisms that I use in there. And also I'm actually still a lot like my, my grandmother passed away last November and it was hit us all really hard. And so I eventually got to the point, oh yeah, thank you. And I eventually got to the point where I, I just kind of got up and I started calling my relatives and asking them how they were doing. And, you know, kind of being really, uh, really open with them about it. Like it just, you know, it hit me really hard. I still remember the, the, the days over there and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, my obviously like, and this is the grandmother on my mother's side. And so, you know, we were kind of, we'd already dealt with my grandfather's death a couple of years ago. He died the same year as my, my father. And so, you know, having all this kind of happen, it was like, oh man. So I had to kind of deal with all that. But I, I eventually got to the point where, you know, it, it almost became, uh, you know, cause you're always thinking like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, bother this person with my issues and all that stuff. But I kind of eventually started bypassing that and just kind of going for the call. And, um, you know, I think getting that, uh, getting yourself to do things despite the fact you don't want to do them. Like with my podcast, right? Like I really, I'm not always into talking people, talking to people, right? I always have to amp myself up, do a little meditation. Even before this, you know, I was listening to some binaural beats, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but I also know that it's important for me if I want to continue doing what I'm doing, that I need to be doing this, these things. I need to be putting myself out there. And if I want to be a mental health advocate, I need to talk about my mental health to people. And, you know, that's really what it comes down to. I have an obligation now and also a passion, but I think whenever the passion goes away, the obligation takes precedent. And whenever the passion's there, they just, they go in such great harmony. And I always know that it'll always come back. So. I think, I think, first of all, your story is very brave to be open about all the things that you went through. Mm -hmm. And I'm always impressed by people that can just say like, this is what I went through. I was, and, and let it, and just tell the world. And I think that especially being a man, Mm -hmm. men just don't talk about it. 
So I think they, a lot of times they're, they're it's like they want to escape through smoking pot. You said it was very common that all your friends were smoking pot or, you know, drinking or whatever it is. We all do that as people. But I think the road that you've chosen to go down to be an advocate and yeah, you might have to hype yourself up sometimes to, you know, do your show or come Mm. on somebody else's podcast. But at the end of the day, it's like what you're doing is so amazing because you're helping other people. Oh, thank you. And you're, and you're, and you're, you know, there's somebody out there that's either listening to my show or your show that goes, well, maybe like, maybe I need to go talk to somebody, you know, and maybe before they were too afraid or maybe they didn't understand that they were having hallucinations and what a panic attack looked like because Mm -hmm. our panic attacks, everybody has a panic attack and it can come in different forms. So I just think I always ask people, so you said a few minutes ago that you're spiritual. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you still consider yourself spiritual? Do you pray? Like, what do you, how do you talk to God? Yeah, funny enough, I actually was at a prayer group. We do a prayer group. Uh, my, I used to go to a church back in Saratoga, which is next to San Jose, and now they're doing all Zoom stuff, obviously. And so um, I was doing a prayer group right before this. But, um, you know, I, I even, even my podcast was somewhat um, inspired by that. I eventually got to the point, because my YouTube channel, if you look at the very first videos, it was just vlogs of me talking. It was me reacting to things. It was me talking about like mental health and anime because I'm a big anime fan, you know, all that kind of stuff. That was what it originally wanted it to be. But eventually I got to the point where I, I said, I asked God, I was like, you know, I just, I don't know what I'm doing here. I just don't know, you know, what, what am I going to do with this channel? Cause that's my, this is my, like my third anime, the third channel that I've been doing. My other one I do is anime casuals. This is mental health casual. I do another podcast called casual bro. So I'm, Casual all over the place. And so, you know, <laughs> you're just I just casual. You're not yeah, dressy. You're not exactly. dressy, Lucky. You're casual. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so, you know, I eventually got to the point where, you know, I was just like, what am I going to do? And, you know, I don't really want to talk to people. But then I kind of shifted the thinking again. And I was like, oh, what if, what if these are all God's people or all God's children, right? Even though you may hate, you know, you may have times where you hate your brother or sister or your cousins and all that stuff, eventually, it comes to the point where you can either keep hating them or you can start loving them. And I think that's how I had to start thinking about it because we all have different viewpoints. We may not agree on certain things, but if I could see people as God's children, I could see them as um, a myself. I, I, I feel, sometimes I feel unworthy of talking to people like Dr. Nay was a really big uh, step up in, in talking to people at that point. Once I figured out who she was, I actually didn't know who she was when I invited her on my show. I just kind of, so, oh yeah, I just looked up depression on YouTube and I was like, oh, Dr. Nay's talking bar. Cool. I'll do that. Uh, let me, let me get in contact with her. And she said, yes. I was like, okay, cool. Let me look into her. And I was like, oh, she's the best. She's yeah. The best. Yeah. And she, she definitely made me feel very welcomed on that. But um, yeah, I had to kind of change my, 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 you know, the way that I was looking at this into, I need to really understand. And if you want to think about it as like a puzzle, right. You know, that without all the pieces in place, which I think all of us kind of make up. And that's why I always tell people whenever they're thinking about suicide or anything like that to reconsider just because for the plain fact that even though you may resemble somebody in some way, you might be uh, doing something somebody else is doing in some way, they still can never do it the same way that you do it. It, They can't do your whole life the same way that you do your whole life. Like even though I'm going through this and we have um, similar, you know, mental, mental um, illnesses or, you know, yeah, Yeah. mental health journeys, you know, even then 
it's still not the same. You know, you, uh, you know, you have kids and all that kind of stuff. I eventually want kids, but it's still not going to be the same. I, it's not copy and pasted over to my side. It's just not how, it, how life works. And that incredible story in and of itself, if you want to think about it as like a book, nobody could ever write your book the same way that you wrote it, you know? And that's really the, the important part about our lives is that we really, um, we're unique in our own way. And so if you take that away from the world, it's like taking, uh, it's like taking a puzzle piece out and it'll always have that, uh, it'll always be missing that piece, you know? That piece that could have had there. A hundred percent. And you know, I think you're pretty fabulous. And I am, I hate to be really corny right now, but I'm going to no be corny. I feel lucky, get it? Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I feel lucky to know you. And I know Dr. Nay does too. Uh, and I will tell you that I, I, I'm very proud of you because it's, you're very brave to do all the things you are to try and help other people. And I think the analogy of a puzzle is amazing because our world needs your piece of the puzzle. So in closing, keep living, keep praying, and keep growing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.